Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is entitled, I Am Jonah. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. There once was a young woman named Maria who decided to break up with her boyfriend, Jimmy. She told him, I don't love you anymore, no longer wanted to be with him, so she ended things and they moved on with their lives. A year later, out of the blue, she sent Jimmy a text message that read something like this, Jimmy, I miss you so much. I think of you all day and night. We should have never broken up and I just can't live my life without you anymore. Let's get back together again. So she sends the message. Whoop. Makes that little sound effect, you know, that iPhones make. But then a minute later, she remembers that she forgot to say something else in the first text message, so she sends a follow-up text message. P.S. Congratulations on winning the lottery. I'm assuming from your response that you are suspicious of Maria's motives in sending her text. Did you know that we all struggle with the same thing that Maria does? Of course, I'm referring to selfishness. I didn't say that. God's Word says it in many places. We've been learning about that this month as well with Jonah. He struggled with selfishness just like we do. But thankfully, there's a God who loves us despite our selfishness, and he loves us enough to help us change. We're wrapping up our series today in the book of Jonah called I Am Jonah. I'd like to invite you to open up God's Word with me to Jonah chapter 4. If you uh, forgot your Bible, you can just raise your hand. We can loan one to you. We've got plenty to go around. Key verse in the book of Jonah that I've been encouraging you to memorize with me or at least learn and become familiar with it is found in chapter 2, verse 19. It is at the end of Jonah's prayer of repentance and it expresses the heart that God wants us to have towards him. And so Jonah says, But I, with shouts of praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. And I will say that salvation comes from the Lord. The book of Jonah shows us that obedience to the Lord brings blessing, but disobedience brings discipline. And as you will soon see, one of the ways to avoid being disobedient to the Lord is to be unselfish. Now there are four words that can be used to summarize the book of Jonah And I wanted to share these with you uh, as we wrap up the series today so that you can kind of have an understanding of the structure and the progression in the book. Uh, And as well, interestingly, I think this same progression can be observed in the people of Israel in the Old Testament and our lives as well. So here's uh, the first one. Chapter 1 in the book of Jonah is about rebellion. I'm going to give you four R's. The first is rebellion. Rebellion from God. In week one of our series, we saw how Jonah ran from God because of his own fear, his prejudice, 
towards the Assyrians and his pride. Chapter 2 is about repentance from sin. In week 2, we learn that it is possible to be repaired and restored by the Lord if we admit that we're broken. And when we fail the Lord, he stands with open arms, ready to receive us back again. Chapter 3 was about restoration to ministry. Uh, last week we saw how the Lord loves to use unworthy people to do unbelievable ministry. Every follower of Christ can be useful to Jesus if we're available. However, none of us is irreplaceable either. This should keep us humble whenever the Lord does choose to use us. Chapter 4 that we're going to look at today is about revelation. The revelation of selfishness. The Lord shows Jonah his heart. Jonah's own heart. Today we're going to see the Lord cut open Jonah's heart like a surgeon and shine a big light on the cancer in his heart that caused him to rebel. And I believe one of the reasons that the Lord had Jonah's story included in the canon of Scripture is so that we could learn how to do this kind of surgery on ourselves. So that we could learn how to look into our own hearts and to see the selfishness that lies within. The one thing keeping Jonah from being used by the Lord was himself. For at least a short period of time, he loved himself more than the Lord. Thus, our big idea for today in chapter 4 is this. Uh, when we love something more than Jesus, we'll hate some things Jesus loves. When we love something more than Jesus, we'll hate some things Jesus loves. This is a critical heart issue that you have to wrestle with at some point. Because the one thing keeping you from being used powerfully by God is you. He's willing and able. And so, when we love something more than Jesus, we'll hate some things Jesus loves. What we are about to see here in Jonah chapter 4 is Jonah's sin nature continuing to wrestle with God's will. Chapter 4 shows us that Jonah didn't just repent once. He was going to need to, as I've mentioned before, live a lifestyle of repentance where he's going to struggle like all of us have. And hopefully he will gradually sin less and rebel less against the Lord. And hopefully he will, there'll, there'll be a decline in his rebellion. But let's look together at verses 1 and 2. It says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Here's point number one on your outline, and I'll give you some context. Number one is this. Our selfishness causes us to create double standards. 
Our selfishness causes us to create double standards. It's rare that this happens, but it does here in chapter 4, verse 1, where the verse starts with, but. You've heard me mention before that but is a conjunction often used by the Apostle Paul to connect one contrasting thought with another. And so usually, not always, but most of the time, there's something negatively described in the previous verse that man did, and then what follows after the but, the conjunction, is God's intercession, how God showed up. Well, in this situation, it's flipped and reversed. What we see in chapter 3, verse 10, at the end of chapter 3, is something God did, where he helps bring revival to the people of Nineveh. It says, if you look at your Bibles, chapter 3, verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. So, interestingly, if not ironically, we have in chapter 3, verse 10, something great that God did. He shows mercy to the repentant Assyrians. But what follows the conjunction but is a negative response by Jonah. Well, how displeased was he? It says in the text that he was angry. The original language used in the Hebrew means to burn. It could literally read it burned him that God did this. You've heard me mention already a few times throughout the series there are several ironies in the book of Jonah. Well, here's one, last one, that I observed uh, in this chapter, and that is this. Did you notice how God cooled off at the end of chapter 3 while Jonah heated up at the beginning of chapter 4? Why was Jonah angry? Well, you've heard me mention already in this series that the Assyrians were a barbaric, violent people that were wicked enemies to the people of Israel. They had committed atrocities against Jonah's people, and Jonah hated the Assyrians so much for what they'd done to his own countrymen in the past that he wanted God to make them pay for what they'd done. The prophet wanted justice for what the Assyrians had done. But here's what lied at the root of Jonah's anger. If we were to peel away the layers of his heart and to get down to the very bottom level of what was going on and what was causing him to react this way, I think we would uncover this. Jonah wanted justice for the Ninevites' sin but mercy for his sin. Jonah wanted justice for the Ninevites' sin, but if we look at chapter 2, when he's in the belly of the whale, he wants mercy for his sin. And so do we. That's the double standard here. And it's caused by selfishness. Deep in his heart, Jonah believed his sin was not as bad as the Assyrians' sin. And 
and so do we. We believe our sin is not as bad as everybody else's. Coaches show this kind of bias all the time. Come on, haven't you picked up on it watching a game, maybe on TV? When the, when the home team gets penalized or called for a foul, the coaches yell and scream, the, the, the refs are being too picky, man. But then when the visiting team gets away with a call or doesn't get a penalty or a foul called against them, the refs are they're blind. Can't they see that, you know? I always get a chuckle watching like football games when they do the replay, and it's always interesting to see whether... I love instant replay because it doesn't lie. It, it tells the truth every time. But even still, if it's very, very, very close, like whether the, the, the receiver caught the ball and whether he got his toe inbounds, if it's just really close and it's even hard to tell on the replay, it's interesting to see how both sides see it differently. Oh, he's so in by a mile. And yet the other team will go, oh, he's way out. And you can see the coaches and the players on the sideline trying to influence the ref, doing all sorts of dramatic things, you know. They get into it. But we do the same thing if we were in a car accident. When someone does damage to our vehicle in an automobile accident, we want the police officer to write them as many tickets as possible. We're thinking in our mind, get them, officer, just get them. Shouldn't even be driving, just take the license away, man. Do you see what they did to my car? However, if we're the one that's at fault for the accident, we're good at coming up with excuses. Officer, you know, you cut me some slack, man. You know, I got a family to feed. I mean, the light, it didn't even change to yellow. It went right from green to red. I don't know if you've ever seen that happen before, but it did with this light. It just skipped yellow. I'm telling you, it was green when I entered the intersection. So, what's the application? We can glean. We want to be doers of God's Word. We want to make sure every time we read God's Word, we leave with what is it asking or telling us to do. Well, here's an application that comes to mind. See your sin as crossworthy. See, your sin is crossworthy. See, although there are some sins that do more damage than others, it was all sin that required Jesus to go to the cross. To die and provide redemption to those that would receive it through faith in Him. There are no accepted sins just as there are no rejected saints. Materialism needed to be atoned for just as much as murder needed to be. Anxiety needed to be atoned for just as much as adultery did. If you claim to be a Christ follower, I want to encourage you to take the perspective that British theologian G.K. Chesterton did. I think I've shared this before, maybe last year in a message, but I love it. It just stuck with me when I read it last year, and I couldn't help but bring it up again because it so models the humility that we need to have about our own sin. 
So around the 20th century, G.K. Chesterton, he was a, a British theologian, and around the 20th century, turn of the 20th century, excuse me, uh, early 1900s, when he was at his heyday, a well-known author and speaker and theologian, uh, the London Times asked various writers to submit essays answering the question, quote, what's wrong with the world, end quote. So a lot of writers, people sent in their opinions and long essays, and G.K. Chesterton sends in the shortest, most insightful essay they ever received. Dear sirs, comma, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. What's he saying? I'm the problem with the world. I'm part of the problem. I'm a sinner. I contribute to the world's problems. Boy, how would our mindset and our attitude and our weeks be transformed if we watched the news and instead of criticizing people on the news because of their sin, if instead we had compassion on them and go, golly, I'm part of the problem too. I just don't break the law with my sin. But I still sin. I still hurt people. I'm still prideful. I'm still selfish. I need to be saved just as much as they need to be saved. Selfishness causes us to see ourselves as innocent victims when in fact we are complicit culprits, just like everybody else. So see your sin as crossworthy. Let's look back at the text, verses 3 and 4. Jonah's having a rough day again. Therefore now, O Lord, he's praying again, please take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Here's number two in your outline. Our selfishness can lead to depression. Our selfishness can lead to depression. Many theologians, biblical counselors, and myself included, believe that Jonah had fallen into a deep depression. Notice he says, O oh Lord, please take my life from me. His prayer reveals that he was so convinced that God was going to punish the Assyrians that he made an idol out of seeing justice delivered. And when God didn't do what Jonah wanted God to do, Jonah saw no purpose in living anymore. Now, Jonah is not the first person in the scriptures to suffer from depression, and he's not the last. There are sufficient indicators in the Bible that Saul, David, Elijah, Job, Jeremiah, Paul, and even Jesus suffered from it. One of the many names that was given to Jesus was that he was a man of sorrows. Since then, many influential saints have, throughout the centuries, battled melancholy. Ministers such as St. Augustine, Martin Luther, John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, and Charles Spurgeon, whom you've heard me quote many times, 
wrote, they all wrote about this stubborn darkness. So did missionary David Brainerd and hymn writer William Cowper. Spurgeon once wrote about his own depression, quote, I could weep by the hour like a child, and yet I knew not what I wept for. He called it a dark dungeon that left him haunted with dread. Another writer calls it a malignant sadness. Now this should humble us because if depression can pummel these giants of the faith, well, then it can also take anyone here to the mat. On the other hand, the struggle of these past saints can encourage present saints that, well, if the Lord can get them through it, then he can get me through it too. Depression hasn't gone away over time, though, and there are still many that suffer from it today. Now, although this is concerning, what concerns me even more as a pastor are the number of Christians that are dealing with depression, or actually not dealing with it, by running to medication first. Just like unbelievers, many Christians are doing this, and in a recent study, here's some stats for you that are mind-blowing to me, some alarming statistics from the Center for Disease Control. It's estimated that at least 30 million Americans are taking antidepressants. And the pharmaceutical companies are making over $11 billion a year from it. This makes antidepressants the third most prescribed drug in our country now. However, interestingly, less than one-third of those taking antidepressants, less than one-third, have been to a counselor in the past year to get help for rooting out the cause of their depression. Now, the Lord has given us both body and soul. Both are intricately connected. And what happens to the body affects the soul, and what happens to the soul affects the body. Thus, there are generally two causes for depression. I'm speaking in generalities here for the sake of time, but uh, there are generally two causes. First, there are spiritual causes. Examples of this that can be seen in the scriptures would be uh, warfare, spiritual warfare, unbiblical thinking. There are people that struggle with depression because they think false things about God that need to be corrected with counseling and discipleship and scriptures. Another spiritual cause is compounding sorrows or disappointments where um, uh, some authors, some of the saints that I mentioned earlier describe depression as setting in after wave after wave after wave of affliction, suffering, setback, no answer to prayer over a prolonged period of time. Still, another spiritual cause can be selfishness, as we see in Jonah's situation, where basically the, a person has a pity party and becomes so self-centered that God didn't do what I wanted him to do, and so I don't see any point in living anymore. In fact, we're so depraved in our sin nature that some people become depressed as a way to get attention and pity from others. 
Not everybody, but some. So there are spiritual causes. There are also physiological causes. Examples would be poor diet, lack of sleep or exercise. There are hormonal issues, certain diseases and side effects from medications that can cause depression. Temperament can be an influencer. For example, if you've ever taken a personality profile at your place of work, um, you may know that the Lord has given some people an analytical, detailed brain, like surgeons, engineers, accountants tend to have this brain. They, they have many strengths, but a weakness is they see the glass as half empty or no glass at all. People with this temperament can be prone to depression because nothing's good enough. And they see details, they see, they see all the um, imperfections in people and all the imperfections in the world. Just as with the spiritual causes, some things, like in the spiritual realm, like if there are spiritual causes to the depression, sometimes the issue can be controlled by us and fixed by us. Sometimes it can't. The same goes for the physiological. Sometimes, if there's a physiological cause for depression, it can be controlled or addressed or fixed by us. And sometimes it can't be. Sometimes it's out of our control. If you have been or are currently finding yourself in the dungeon of depression, I just want to say, I am so sorry. Because it, it is a dreaded monster. And I hurt for you. Um, I'm ashamed to admit this, but uh, until a couple of years ago, I myself had false assumptions about depression until I started to struggle with it myself and began to read and educate myself because I wanted to understand it and I wanted to learn and I wanted to grow. And uh, I learned I, there was a lot I didn't know. I learned that depression is far more complex than most people are aware of. It's not as easy as, man, dude just needs to cheer up. It's not that simple. And so, because I've made the mistake of having false assumptions, and because I fear and I'm very concerned about how Christians are being worldly and how they handle or respond to depression, I want to give you just three sub-points of pastoral counsel here. This is A, B, and C on your outline. The first is, letter A, be aware of cultural influences. Be aware of cultural influences. There are huge cultural shifts that have taken place in the last 25 years in our country that have brought on an exponential spike in antidepressant prescriptions. Here's a couple examples. There's been a shift from being responsible to being a victim. Some of you are old enough to remember, as I am, when the, it was still kind of mainstream thinking that you're responsible for your own mistakes and life choices. Well, there's been a gradual shift to where most of the culture thinks they're a victim of something or someone. There are many messengers trying to convince us of this, that we are no longer responsible for our feelings. Instead, they teach 
that we are victims to our feelings. Here's another cultural shift that has had a dramatic effect on this topic, and that is the shift in advertising to doctors to advertising directly to consumers. And I'm referring to the pharmaceutical companies. It's called, in short, DTC. That stands for direct-to-consumer advertising. The United States and New Zealand are the only industrialized countries in the world with drug, with drug companies that do this. It started in 1999 when the FDA released a landmark document outlining guidelines for direct-to-consumer advertising. Once drug companies were given permission by the FDA to communicate directly to patients, they began shifting millions of dollars towards television ad campaigns for consumers, basically circumventing the doctor. This is radical, landmine, a major shift in the landscape of pharmaceutical sales reps uh, which I learned a lot about pharmaceutical sales work when I, 25 years ago, I worked for Enterprise Rent-A-Car before I was in ministry, and we put a lot of pharmaceutical reps in cars, and I would talk to them and find out about their job, and, and um, they, their job was to basically sell the drug to the doctor so the doctor then would prescribe it. Well, that all changed in 1999. That's when those commercials started showing up with all the side effects that sometimes comedians and Saturday Night Live make fun of, of this drug. That didn't happen before 1999. Maybe you don't remember that, or maybe you do. Do you remember watching TV when there were no drug commercials? I do. It was nice. It was actually nice. Um, well, that changed everything, because now what happens is the campaigns were designed, and they're very well crafted, they're designed to make us aware of certain drugs to convince us that we need them, and then to encourage us to go ask our doctor for them and put the pressure on the doctor to prescribe it. Whereas before, only the doctor knew what the options were. Now, I understand some of you are probably thinking, yeah, but Pastor Kerry, there's, there's good in that, and then I know some options that the doctor doesn't. Yes, true, but also this has caused a lot of people to go and ask their doctor for an antidepressant. So, here's another shift. From being impatient to intolerant. Our 4G high-speed internet culture has conditioned us to not only expect solutions immediately, but to also expect quick solutions to remove any suffering with as little effort as possible. And so one of the drawbacks of our culture and one of the drawbacks of this shift that's happened in the pharmaceutical injury, excuse me, uh, industry is, is that if we feel anything wrong, we instantly want it fixed. Just write a, write a script for me. Just, just, just write, give me, there's got to be a drug, there's a pill for that, right? And it's covered by my insurance. I want it. That didn't used to be the case. So there's been cultural influences that affect how people think about a topic like depression. Here's letter B. Don't ignore spiritual causes. 
One of the dangers of running to medications too quickly is that there are spiritual issues that, if there's a spiritual issue, you could end up numbing emotions the Lord wants you to feel. It means that you could end up short-circuiting the purpose the Lord has in the trial. The Psalms are filled with laments written by men whose lives were in danger, felt abandoned by God, or had sinned. David's one of them. These beautiful prayers might never have been recorded if they had just taken a pill right away as soon as they felt depressed. Instead, they ran to the Lord first. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, there will always be a purpose for anything you suffer through, including depression. He can redeem it. Some of the writers and authors and preachers that I mentioned earlier wrote some of their most powerful Holy Spirit-anointed, insightful works and songs and sermons when they were in the depths of depression. Because God uses it somehow to humble a man or a woman and cause them to cry out desperately and to press into the Lord and to go to the scriptures like they never would before. And then out of that comes rich, sweet insight and depth. Here's letter C. Rule out physiological causes. B was don't ignore spiritual causes, but C, rule out physiological There are many things that affect brain chemistry in the way that we feel. When counseling someone that is experiencing depression, I always recommend that they see their doctor for a physical, complete physical. That's because sometimes depressed feelings can be resolved by um, changing diet, uh, getting more sleep, uh, starting to exercise to get endorphins released by the body naturally, Uh, Sometimes adjusting hormones, for example, women that are going through menopause sometimes will experience um, depression. Women that have just had a baby, postpartum depression, I'm sure you've heard of that, because there's a massive change in the body's hormones after going through labor. Men sometimes will uh, go through, uh, I can't remember what the term is for it, but they basically will have low testosterone levels. Sometimes they experience that before age 40, and that can cause them to feel depressed and weak and tired. And so they may mean, they, men sometimes need hormone therapy. I say all this to say is that sometimes there's a physiological issue that can help change the way you feel. So applications, uh, well, an application, here's one that comes to mind as we get back to the, I want to get back to the text here after that little detour. Search for the root of depression before taking a pill. Search for the root. What's causing it? I want to be clear about something. I I am not against the use of antidepressants. And and if you are on them, I'm not trying to shame you at all. I I don't want to... I do not want to do that. What I'm saying is use extreme caution with them. Be careful. Because antidepressants have many side effects and there's not enough data yet to determine their long-term effects, I would urge you to make them a last resort instead of the first option. 
Do it after you've ruled out everything else. Do it after you've gone to biblical counseling and memorized scripture and changed your diet and your exercise and, and, uh, and started sleeping better. And, and uh, do it after you've made sure that the hormones are right and that you don't have a thyroid issue or um, people with Crohn's disease, diabetes, I could go on and on and on, fibromyalgia, uh, people that have gluten issues, food allergies can experience symptoms of depression. Rule out those things so that you deal with the root. And if the Lord wills, I hope to address this topic a little further in my next teaching series in the book of Psalms. Uh, In the meantime, if you or someone you know is struggling with depression, I would recommend the following two books. These should be on your sermon handout. Um, One by Robert Somerville. It's called If I'm a Christian, Why Am I Depressed? It's an excellent book. Somerville is a um, biblical counselor at the Master's Seminary uh, down south. And uh, he's a counselor, and he starts out his book by saying, I'm a counselor that's supposed to help people that are depressed. Why am I depressed? And he, he went through a season of depression, and then out of that season came a great book. Uh, second book is called Depression, Looking Up from the Stubborn Darkness by Ed Welch. He's a very well-respected uh, biblical counselor. Um, you can get these at Amazon or christianbook.com is another site that I use often. So, back to the text now. Having said those things, um, I want to get back to the text after giving you a little bit of pastoral counsel. Looking at verse 4, how does God respond to Jonah's self-centered, circumstantial depression? The Lord asks a question. (laughs) Do you do well to be angry? (laughs) This could be translated another way. Do you have a right to be angry? Or is it good for you to be angry right now? Or you could use the a more, here's a more contemporary translation. How's that working for you? <laughs> I, I was thinking about this as I was studying this last night. And I, I think I mentioned this when we went through the gospel series in Mark earlier this year. Anytime the Lord asks a question, it's usually not good like that he's asking the question, and it just feels as though there's no right answer. Like I would be paralyzed if I was a disciple with Jesus and he asked a question. I'd be like, if I say yes, he might go that way. If I say no, he might say that. I don't know. Just tell me what I'm supposed to do. You know, that's how I would feel. And so I, I think I was thinking like what it would be like to be Jonah there. Is it, is it good for you to be angry? <clears throat> Yes, right now it uh, does. Yeah, it feels good, you know. But it won't in a few minutes after you tell me why. You know? <laughs> I know that that's going to change, but right now, this second, yeah, it does do me well. Tomorrow, no, I will regret it, and I'll have to say I'm sorry and repent, or I'll end up in that whale again. So, so, so the Lord, interesting, he's gentle but firm with Jonah. You know as well as I do that when he... He asks a question. There's always a statement he's making in the question. There's something implied, right? In other words, it's not well for you to be angry right now. That's what the Lord's saying. It's kind of like my kids. I try to ask questions to my kids so that I'm not always commanding them to do things. And then they don't do what I ask them to do. And they say, well, Dad, if you wanted me to do that, why didn't you just tell me? 
I'm like, well, I was hoping that you would, if I asked you, when do you plan on unloading the dishwasher, I was hoping that you would see you needed to already have the dishwasher unloaded. And they go, well, Dad, if you want me to unload the dishwasher right now, why don't you just tell me? So we're, we're working on that. I'm not saying I'm God in my house. Please don't take it that way. I know some of you might think that, but I'm not. So, um, but obviously the Lord's trying to make a point. <laughs> You're, I'm not here to serve you, Jonah. You're here to serve me. You see, the Lord loves to show mercy to the repentant instead of justice. But when we love something like justice more than Jesus, we'll hate some things that Jesus loves. Let's look back at verse 5. So what did Jonah do? Well, he went out to the city, and he sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade until he could see what would become the city. Here's point number three in your outline. Our selfishness causes emotional instability. Our selfishness causes emotional instability. I think Jonah went out to watch the city from a bluff just outside of town because he wanted to see if his crying out angry prayer request would cause the Lord to reconsider destroying the city after the Lord showed mercy and relented. So Jonah, I'm imagining him sitting there with a cooler in a lawn chair on the bluff overlooking Nineveh to see, is God going to change his mind again and take out this city? I want to see some fireworks, Lord, and they deserve it. Look at verses 6 through 8 now. The Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. That was thoughtful of the Lord. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. It's important to note how Jonah went from exceedingly angry to exceedingly glad to I want to die again. That's the instability, like he's, wave, he's riding waves. He's in the dumps again, second time in the, in the chapter that he asked the Lord to take his life. He's going from one extreme to another emotionally. Notice how selfishness causes him to let comfort or discomfort dictate how he should feel. Whether he's comfortable or hot. Or whether there's a worm eating the plant that he once enjoyed. All the while missing what the Lord's trying to do in his life. So here's an application that can help us. Anchor your heart in the truth of God's word. The world says to do whatever feels right, but God's word says don't do whatever feels, like, feels right. <laughs> There's a book that's in my Kindle app I haven't read yet. 
the title is very compelling. It's one of those titles that I, myself as a preacher I see and I go, man, why couldn't I think of that? Because I stink at titles, you know? And, it's, and the title is, Don't Do What Your Heart Tells You. <laughs> it's just, I can't wait to read it. It's going to be interesting. But, but this is because our emotions are driven in large part by our sin nature. And they're tainted by our sin nature. We could go to almost every chapter in the Bible and find examples where emotions were not reliable. There are a few where they are, but there are a truckload. There are just tons and tons and tons of scriptures that talk about self-control. Be sober-minded, self-control. The reason that is is because we as humans are not known for that. We are not known for being self-controlled. We are often driven by our emotions, which are driven by our sin nature. Instead, how we think should be shaped by God's word, which will often change how we feel. This means that if you have not yet, as a Christ follower, developed the discipline of getting up in the morning and spending time in God's word before you start your day, you are setting yourself up to ride the waves that Jonah did. You are setting yourself up to be exceedingly happy one day and then angry the next. Or it could be happy one minute, angry and depressed the next. Because circumstances and your sin nature and the adversary will all work together to cause you to be bounced around like a boat with no anchor in the middle of a hurricane. This is why, and you've heard me say this before, if your faith is not anchored in the truth of God's word, then it will be tossed around by the waves of your emotions. All the saints that I mentioned earlier, Spurgeon and Brainerd and Luther and Augustine and Cowper and so on and so forth, all these super studs that wrote incredible works went to God's word when they were struggling with their depression. They clung to the promises of God. They learned the word. They learned the truth of God's word because it never changes. And they leaned on that and relied on that. And that got them through. That kept them from doing stupid things because they were being tossed by emotions. So if your faith is not anchored in the truth of God's word, then it will be tossed by the waves of your emotions. Let's look at verse 9 as we finish up the chapter and the book. But God, there's that conjunction again, you think this is going to end well? But God said to Jonah, oh, and it's a question. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Well, at least Jonah's honest this time. And he said, yes, I do do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which 
there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Here's point number four in your outline. Our selfishness causes us to confuse priorities. Our selfishness causes us to confuse priorities. The problem with selfishness is that it's often too difficult for us to detect in ourselves, but we resent it when anybody points it out to us. But that's what the Lord ends up having to do with Jonah. He exposes Jonah's selfishness using questions. Now, I know some of you are good with numbers or maybe have that analytical mind I was talking about earlier, and you probably remember when I said Nineveh was 300,000 to 600,000 people, and you're doing the math going, whoa, 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 whoa. It says here it's 120,000. Well, I thought of you. Although this number appears to contradict the 300,000 to 600,000 population estimate that I gave earlier in the series, I tell you not so fast. Most scholars believe that this 120,000 number is a reference only to the men in the city. This was common in the scriptures, thus not including women and children. Notice in verses 10 and 11, in essence, the Lord tells Jonah, you care more for that plant than you do for the people of Nineveh. What's wrong with you? One of the telltale signs that selfishness is taking over your life is you become more concerned with your physical welfare than the spiritual welfare of others. You become more concerned with your own comfort than you do the souls of others. I remember years ago hearing John Maxwell at a conference tell a story. He's a popular author and leadership guru, speaker. Well, before he got into leadership genre, he was a pastor. And so he tells a story about one Sunday after service, an important couple in his church came up to him and, and said, Pastor, we got a problem here. There are too many new people coming to this church. And they're taking our seats. Yeah. Now, at first he thought they were kidding. And similar to this, I think Maxwell was down front at the, you know, at the end of the aisle, down front from the platform. And so he, he says, well, can, can you show me exactly where these new people are sitting that are taking your seats? And they said, yeah, we'll show you right here. So, so they walk down the aisle, and, and, and then he's looking around at the, at the, is right here is where you sit? This is where you usually sit? Yeah, 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 yeah this is it. And he, he says, I don't, I don't see it. Go, what are you talking about, Pastor? He goes, I'm looking for the nameplate that says this is exclusively your seat, and I can't find it. Well, he goes on to explain they didn't come back to our church anymore. They didn't want to be members, and that was probably a good thing. I had some other churches I could recommend to them. Those pastors probably don't want me to recommend that church to them, but, but the point was <laughs> the proof that, that you love Jesus is found in whether you love what Jesus loves, and if you love your comfort and your physical comfort more than your concern for spiritual condition of lost people then 
you're hating something that Jesus loves. And i got to be honest with you, transparent with you, this is something that I think we can be susceptible to as a church in that I know the Lord has us kind of in a holding pattern right now. We, we haven't grown in a while. And one of the things that I think we're going to have to be on guard for is that we don't become complacent and comfortable where we aren't watching for newcomers and willing to accommodate and make adjustments for them. It's just something that humans do. The longer circumstances stay the same... Humans like to start to protect to make sure the circumstances stay that way. Change becomes harder to accept. Even change such as new people coming and sitting where I used to sit or parking where I like to park. So we need to be on guard about that. Here's the final application for you. Check your priorities with God and his word. These last few verses in Jonah challenge us to evaluate our priorities so that they are in line with what matters most to the Lord. The thing with priorities is that most people I talk to want to please the Lord, but they struggle to do it because they've put so many other good things in front of pleasing the Lord. And so they feel kind of trapped, like, I'm too busy to serve or walk with the Lord, or um, I, I just don't have time, I, I, I have all these other things. Well, no, it's not a schedule issue, it's a priority issue. You have to say no to good things so you can say yes to better things. Like no to staying up late watching Sports Center so you can say yes to getting up earlier to do your devotions in the morning. And I could go on and on. So are your priorities in line with the Lord's, or do you need to reprioritize? Sometimes it just means you have to step back and try and take a break from the schedule and look at things and evaluate, where is my time going? Where are the resources that God's given me going? And is it pleasing to the Lord? So, when we love something more than Jesus, we'll hate some things that Jesus loves. And one of the many things that Jesus loves to do is changing hearts. He loves to transform self-centered people into unselfish servants, and he's very good at it. I hope you've enjoyed this short series in Jonah, and I hope you've learned that there's a Jonah living in all of us. We are capable of running from God, and we are capable of being used greatly by God. Would you... Bow your heads with me as we close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to just, first of all, thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that through Christ we have access to the same resurrecting power that raised him from the dead. Thank you, Lord, that that power is accessible to those who by faith, repent of their sin and turn their hearts and their lives over to you and begin a relationship with you. Lord, if there's anyone here today that has not been born again or anyone here today that thinks they've been born again but is not, would you please save them? Would you show them how much they need you? Would you make your presence known? Father, I next want to pray for those that may struggle with depression. 
Lord, please, would you use that same resurrecting power that raises the dead to heal them of their depression or to get them through it, to enable them to endure it. Lord, we know from the scriptures that sometimes you choose not to heal because that is better for us. That, that, that makes us more like Christ. It keeps us dependent on you. It makes us go to the word. It makes us read books that we wouldn't read and pray prayers we wouldn't pray. Father, for those that maybe have formed premature assumptions about depression, would you open their eyes and their minds and help them be compassionate? Soften their hearts. Thank you, Lord, that you're the great redeemer and that you promise to bring all things together for good. It may not be in the timing that we want, but you will do it. And your track record is impeccable. Finally, Lord, we ask for your favor on our church. Please, Lord, would you use us to reach many with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we dream of the day when this multi-purpose room is filled with worshipers. We ask, Lord, that you would help us. Even though we're like Jonah, we are fearful. Some of us are prejudiced. Some of us are very comfortable. We all struggle with being self-centered. Yet, there's hope in Jonah's story in that we see how you used him. And so, Lord, we're asking, would you use us despite our deficiencies and our sinfulness? Would you use us? Use us, Lord, please, to make an impact in this community for the gospel. We pray all this in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.